this is Tom Wallace, and welcome to another edition of Florida Funders Angel Investing Podcast. In case you're new to the show or unfamiliar with Florida Funders, we have a rather unique business model. We're a hybrid between a venture capital firm and a curated network of angel investors that is geo-targeted on the state of Florida. As we like to say, we're on a mission at Florida Funders, and that mission is to transform Florida from sunshine state to startup state. We have what I believe is a really exciting guest on our show today in Ryan Neese. Ryan has an amazing and very unique background where he not only played in the NFL, went on to become an announcer, then became an entrepreneur and is now a venture capitalist. Not something I've ever seen before and certainly very unlike any guest we've ever had in the show. But we'll get into more about Ryan and his background in a few minutes. I'll let him tell you a lot more about his background. But very quickly, I want to touch on the present state of investing in America. As America starts to open back up post-COVID, we're seeing a lot, a lot of changes in a very rapid period of time. If you believe that venture capital and angel investing is closely linked or correlated in any way with the stock market, then you'd have to believe that things are looking up from substantially or significantly from just a month ago, things look so dire. The stock market's come raging back. The NASDAQ just eclipsed 10,000 for the first time ever. Who would have thought this? Again, looking back 45 days or even 30 days ago. So how will this affect investors? And more important in, in our area and in, in our world is how will it affect early stage tech investing? And that's how, something post-COVID and what the new normal looks like. And that's something I hope to get into with Ryan during the show. So with that, uh, Ryan, welcome. Again, so excited to have you on the show. Would really appreciate if you take a few minutes and tell our listeners uh, a bit more about your background. I just really touched on it. it it's, you have so, such an interesting background. Please tell us more. I appreciate you having me on for Florida Founders and, and this podcast. Um, I know that uh, this is a unique time in, in history and we all have very challenging and busy lives. And so I was excited to, to come on. I know you guys do a lot of work to champion finding ways to uh, support entrepreneurs, support men and women that embrace change and and uh, embrace innovation. And right now, I think that's exactly what we need to continue to do and continue to find ways to adopt new innovative ideas, new innovative policies, and, and embrace change. And that's what I'm, I'm excited about to talk with you. And I do have, I guess, somewhat of a unique background. Yeah. I don't know all the other guests that you've had on, but nevertheless, you know, playing in the NFL for seven years, very fortunate to play with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, win a Super Bowl in my first year, you know, having a father that played in the NFL for 14 years, is in the Hall of Fame. You know, I got a chance to see early on in my life greatness and got the chance to be around him and be in the locker room. And he had me young. And so I got the, the, <laughs> to reap the rewards of that and grow up along his career. And it was really a phenomenal um, experience to be able to be around Jerry Rice and Joe Montana and some of the most elite athletes of all time. Wow. I remember and, watching your father play. He was incredible. He was okay. He was okay. He was, <laughs> but I am a Steeler fan. I'm originally from Pittsburgh, so I was never rooting for him. But. Okay. Okay. I won't, I won't hold that against you, but okay. nevertheless, they, you know, another phenomenal organization and just a, uh, an organization, the Rooney family that um, built a very special, uh, special teams year in and year out. So I have a lot of respect for, for the Steelers and Steeler fans are diehard. But I, I know that for me growing up in that environment was, I guess, part of the experience and gave me a unique perspective. and. I got a chance to start to see something that I thought could be attainable in my own life in a lot of ways. And I think that that's something for all of us to think about of 
how do we start to dream about things that we've never seen? And that's hard to do. And, and I got a chance to see my father do that. And then I watched him transition after he got done playing and built a very successful firm. They built an investment firm in Silicon Valley. They had about two and a half billion under management over a 10 year period, uh, primarily investing in venture. So I got a chance to start to see that as well and drink the Kool-Aid of, of Silicon Valley in the tech world early on. I started investing in tech in the late 90s when I was in college. I would never forget looking up you know, stocks and buying Cisco and Intel and Juniper and uh-huh. Sun Microsystems and getting a chance to meet Reed early on and, and Netflix and hearing that story over a cup of coffee and with my father and just really you know, things that, you know, helped shape me to where I am, I guess, in a lot of ways today, but then going to play in the NFL, winning a Super Bowl my first year, I got spoiled. Uh, my father and I, the only father, father and son in, in NFL history to have Super Bowl rings in our first year. Oh, we I didn't know that. That's, congratulations. That's, uh, we actually, we're the only father and son to have Super Bowl rings at all. I wondered about my, that. I, I might use that as a trivia question in future shows. <laughs> they, yeah, there you go. Howie Long's son won a Super Bowl ring a few years ago. And so we welcomed him into the father-son club. Interesting, you know, again, just weird how things happen. But my father and Howie actually went into the Hall of Fame together. And so, you know, the odds of uh, both of those men having sons that went on to play in the NFL and win a Super Bowl are pretty rare and pretty special. So we were excited about that. Through that experience of being around Tampa team, I had a chance to be around some great players, Derek Brooks and Rondé Barber and John Lynch and Simeon Rice and just guys that played at a, Warren Sapp played at an elite level. And early on, I got to see, hey, this is what it's going to take. This is what you're going to have to do if you want to stay here for playing the league for a long period of time. We all know that the NFL stands for not for long. It's a very, most careers are very, very short. The average career span is only three years and three games. So Mm-hmm. Most people don't play for a very long time, but I had great mentors to individuals that showed me what it meant to be a professional and play at the highest level and played for seven years. Thought I was going to uh, go work at my father's firm when I was done playing. Well, the year I retired, I couldn't go work there because they sold the business that year. So it was uh, an easy, <laughs> easy way for me to try to figure out what to do next, which the transition for athletes is it's never easy, no matter yeah, how I wanted, hard. I want to talk to you a little bit about that, yeah. and uh, we'll get. I'm interested to hear, uh, really hear about that because I, I did in my doing some research. I, I saw where 78 percent of all retired NFL players are bankrupt or under extreme financial stress within two years of retirement. And obviously, you bucked that trend. Sounds like you had a great mentor in your father, but tell us how you did that and how that came about. It's a sad statistic, and it's a statistic that I'm I don't like hearing, and it's a number that we shouldn't be proud of because we have men and women, professional athletes that dedicate their life to that profession, to earn a living, to make some money in a short period of time often. And you hope that they have the ability to be solvent and and be financially in in, in a healthy position after they're done playing. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And, And all of a sudden we, the men and women that we need to be our heroes and heroes in our community Unfortunately, now are you know trying to scratch two pennies together and fight to figure out what what to do. And part of it's because we build our whole identity around sport. And when that sport is taken away, sometimes we lose our identity. And I had a mentor once tell me the biggest enemy in life is your inner me. And if you don't understand understand that, you really got to spend time thinking through how does the your your inner me 
play a role in your decision making, good or bad. And oftentimes the ego gets in the way from for athletes. Sometimes they're overly ambitious and make poor investments because they naturally think that nothing can go wrong because it never has in their career and they take unnecessary risks. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of variables that come into play. And, but I will say the most important thing, and, and like anything, it usually comes back to education. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate while I played. I took classes at Harvard and Stanford. I had mentors, my father and others, that I got a chance to see at least how, how, how it looked like doing it the right way. It didn't mean it was the right way, but it gave me some guidance. And, and, and you know, to be honest, I just wanted to compete. I didn't want to be a statistic. I never have been that person at school when I was at UCLA, you know, I was a psycho bio major at first. And then I transitioned to, to economics and got a minor in political science because I didn't want to take classes like other athletes. I never wanted to be labeled something that the society was going to put on you in an unnecessary or unfair way. And um, so I fought and I continue to fight against that. And through that, I try to pursue excellence. And so I was afraid of that statistic, quite frankly, and, and push myself. So when I couldn't go work at my father's firm, I quickly went and, and started in the DeBartolo office right there in Tampa and put my hat on there and started going into the office every day and w- looking at what they were doing from a real estate standpoint. Spent about two years in there with Ed Coble, who's president of DeBartolo Development, and got a chance to learn their operations and looking at investments and was an analyst with them. And two years into that, a buddy of mine was in business school, called me and said, Hey, Ryan, I'm working on an idea project. Love to get your opinion. And he was trying to figure out a way to enable athletes to create authentic video content from their mobile device, send it anywhere they wanted virtually in real time. And, and that sounds pretty simple today because video is ubiquitous. It's everywhere now. But in 2010, video wasn't the hot thing. And it was not something people really felt excited about. Nevertheless, we decided to co-found a business called Straightcast Media, where we built a platform that enabled athletes and others to create HD video from their phone and send it to television in 15 seconds or anywhere they wanted. And that was my transition back into the world of technology. And I tell you, you know, being a startup founder, as you know, you work with a lot of them. It is not easy. It is a daunting task. And, you know, playing in the NFL, I thought was hard and it was extremely hard and demanding, but I would 100% rather run down the field over and over again and hit a 300 pound lineman over and over again, then have to deal with some of those early, early days of, of running a startup. There's a lot of fires you're putting out. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of things you're doing right and wrong at the same time. You're, as you're about to fall off the cliff, your partner, your co-founder is talking you off of it. And then as soon as he talks you off of it, you got to talk him off of it. So yeah. I have tremendous amount of respect for the men and women that take an idea and turn it into a business and turn that business into something that scales and grows because it, it, it is it is rare. It's just a very yeah. tough mountain to climb. Well, that is so true. I like to say Entrepreneur's Day. I'm, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life as well. I take that from Namaste, which is the, the yoga term, meaning the divinity within me honors the divinity with you, in you. And Entrepreneur's Day, I say the entrepreneur within me honors the entrepreneur with, within you. And to your point, being an entrepreneur, being a founder of a startup is just, it's a fight, it's a battle, and it's really, really hard work. And it's, and, uh, you know, I think we'll touch on that a little later. We can get into that, what you look for when you're investing in, in, the, in those founders. But uh, uh, keep going. Tell us more about Straycast and how that went. So we, we slaved away at that. We started to pitch and try to raise money. We raised a seed round early on enough to, to give us some runway and get traction and 
you know, again, we, we, we leaned into an area that we knew. And I realized looking back, sometimes your dreams aren't big enough. Sometimes the business you're building and the mission isn't big enough. And it's not your fault. It's because that's probably limited by what you know. And oddly enough, we actually built technology that was very similar to the makeup of what is considered WhatsApp today. You had the ability to communicate without using any cellular signal or any data off of your phone. You could communicate via Wi-Fi, via uh, voice and or video at the time. And I remember testing our technology. I was on an airplane. We had Wi-Fi and communicating with somebody on the ground. And people on the plane were looking at me like I was a terrorist for a second because they didn't know what was (laughs) going on, how I was actually doing that. But we weren't thinking about doing something for the masses. It was thinking about how do we give athletes who we felt were being taken advantage of by writing a text-based message that was taken out of context or misinterpreted and then being attacked or, in essence, being um, scrutinized for those messages. And this was early days of Twitter and others. And give them an ability to create authentic, powerful, rich content and that was genuine and real and, and allow the athlete to be the world's expert at what they're doing, right? Instead of just talking into a microphone and allowing ESPN and all these other networks to profit off of their content, we felt like we could empower the athletes. So what was the financial model? How, how did this generate revenue? That's a great question. And we looked at it almost like a real estate play that we were capturing real estate and or content that the world's largest media companies could not capture. And as we all know, content is key. And if you want quality proprietary content, you got to pay for it. And so these networks wanted that content and they would pay us for that content. And then we would actually, we were the first company in history to actually pay players for the content that they were creating after games, during game, before games, nothing during games and all the other between times. And so that was part of it. Not necessarily a good thing because that shrinks down your margin significantly, which makes it hard for you to really scale a business and make it sustainable. But nevertheless, the underlining tech was what was really important. The network of athletes that we had, had built was extremely powerful and profitable and valuable, I should say. And we ended up getting acquired by Fox Sports after about four years of building that company. And, and I have two questions on that, Ryan. What was your role within the companies, you know, yours versus your co-founder? What, what was your main role? And then tell us about the exit, you know, a little bit more about the exit. My primary role was, was business development and managing everything other than anything related to technical. My, my co-founder was on the technical side, managed a technical team. He and I probably shared and overlapped on all the duties. Our team at, at, at peak was only eight of us. We were really small. We used to joke that we were, we were mighty but strong and, and found a way to I really slave away at, at, at getting something done and getting it across the finish line. And, and really the reason that we got to a point where we were going to get acquired is we were looking at raising uh, another round. We were at a point where we didn't reach our milestones necessarily that would justify raising another round of capital. We were in no man's land in the sense that we weren't going to take a down round. We knew we were onto something because we were continuing to add athletes. Networks were continuing to ask for more and more content. We saw that there was more and more distribution outlets as platforms grew, both online and offline. We knew it was a race for quality proprietary content. So we saw those things coming, but we were just capital strapped. And, and so we started to work the two largest 
customers against each other and said we were going to develop exclusivities with one or the other. And therefore, it made them position themselves against one another in a way that eventually we, we got one of them to acquire us. And so that's the way that it played out. And, and what's amazing is it's, it's fun for us to know that you, you get a win. You know how hard it is just to get a win. That was important. And it gave us street cred. I mean, I remember going up and down Silicon Valley and asking for money and guys laughing at us, two football players. And we look like a team of misfits in a lot of ways. And I probably wouldn't fund to see they're looking back at us, but I, I never forget that's, you know, that's the, the chip on our shoulder. And, and those were the people that became our friends and have become mentors and investors with us because we earned their respect that we found a way to get it done. And so that was part of the journey. And, and through that, you know, you had a lot of friends that would come to us over the years and say, Ryan, I'm looking at this deal. I know you do tech, you're in tech, you know, people in tech, look at it for me. And it was really sad what I saw a lot of people putting money into. And a lot of my teammates and others that I knew were trying to invest in this sexy asset class that they called venture capital. And um, it was frustrating to see people do that over and over again. And, and so when we got acquired, my partner, my co-founder stayed on and, and decided to stay on for the earnout. I left to start Next Play because my father and I realized that there was an opportunity for us to take our knowledge, our experience, our relationships and provide an opportunity to give people that normally didn't have a seat at the table in Silicon Valley. We both know that when you look at the asset class, typically around 75 to 80% of all the returns are driven by 10% of the funds. It is a small concentration of elite firms that are found a way to create a moat around them that give them a differentiated value proposition and they find ways to invest in the, in the, in the next great founders and, and create the next great companies. And so most institutions can't get into these firms, let alone individuals. And, you know, we're now fortunate that we are able to invest with Excel and Lightspeed and True Ventures and Andreessen and a very elite group of top tier venture funds that have proven to put points on the board. And our investors come to us for that access. And, and that's what we built with NextPlay is an, a, a fund, both as a fund of fund that we invest in access constraint managers that are, you know, not just upper quartile performance, but upper decile performance. And fortunately, because of the community of investors we've created with groups like Google and, and, and Ashley Furniture and Drew Brees and my dad and Elway and Patrick Mahomes and Magic and all these amazing people that we put into our LP community, we now have a value proposition that's very attractive both to our GPs and our founders that we have somebody or something of significance in 32 of the major cities around the country. And so we try to, you, you know how important it is to try to bring value or do something that's differentiated amongst your peers. And, and that's, that's helped us. Sure. And we've been able to invest in great companies like Peloton and Pure Storage and Stem Centrics and Rubric and Impossible Foods. And, and we aren't that smart, but we're smart enough to know that if I'm going to get a bill, uh, get a deal from Aileen Lee, who's on the Midas list at Cowboy or Kirsten Green at Forerunner or Bill Gurley at Benchmark or Byron Dieter at Bessemer or Jeff Jordan at Andreessen, the chances of, of us seeing something of high quality is, is much higher if I'm investing out of uh, somewhere or some other type of platform or other type of portfolio. So, you know, our job and our responsibility is to make sure we're preventing adverse selection. And, you know, that's why we have to make sure we're bringing a lot of value that we're a, a strategic and a friendly in, in nature. And that's how we build NextPlay. NextPlay invests in other funds, but you also do some direct deals. 
So our core fund is 80% of the capital has to be invested into other funds. We're pretty prudent. No one's going to really judge us for being in Excel. Um, they will judge us on when we do do a direct investment. Um, like I said, it, this is a, a challenging game. And so we have to make sure we're, we're giving our, our, our investors the opportunity to see strong returns. And so we have the ability to use up to 20% to do some co-investments. We also have a dedicated co-investment fund that we do use as well. Uh, we just finished raising that. So we now have two core products. We just have raised a dedicated fund to fund. And then we'll go to market at the end of this year with our, our next core product, fund to fund product. So when you're doing direct investing, and well, first of all, I, I have to ask you about, about Peloton because it's so topical with all of us being quarantined for COVID. I was on my Peloton <laughs> all the time, like half of America. I had it for two years before, though. I, would, I, I love have, it. I love it. <laughs> and I bought it at the IPO, just, and, and then I, I, <laughs> I didn't hang on to it, so I was stupid oh, there. Oh, no. Yeah. But uh, was Peloton a direct investment or was that investment you yeah. made through? When, when yeah, that was a direct investment. We were able to be in that company early. And, you know, again, it's, you know, what's unique about Peloton is it's really three companies. It's a hardware company, which if you've ever invested in hardware, you know how hard it is and the probability oh, yeah. of success is very low in hardware. It's a content company. They have to be able to create phenomenal content. They have great content. Yeah. And they got, Even they're they off the bike workouts now, are, are, I, I use a lot. I think it's fabulous. But, in, you know, in today's world, too, it has to be relevant. It has to be timely. It has to be the frequency of it. It can't be stale. It can't be stagnant. People just get antsy. And then it's a software company. The amount of technology that's actually in the bikes, um, the interaction between the riders and the community and trainers, being able to get one of those right is hard. Getting all three right, it's almost impossible. And I got a chance to meet them via True Ventures, which is a very, very respected micro VC in Silicon Valley. Actually, I think they were ranked the number one VC in 2018. But John Callahan, they are the, one of the managing partners and founding partners, uh, introduced me to John Foley, Foley at, at Peloton. I saw their story. And I've been around the fitness world long enough to know when I know that there's something that has some hooks to it and can, can move the needle. And I've mm -hmm. um, got a chance to interact with him. And what I appreciated with, with the way that John talked about his company, and it's something that I'm always looking for for founders, is when individuals can be clear, concise, and confident in what they're talking about. There's a lot of founders that I talk with that have great ideas, but you start talking to them and they go in one direction, you go to another direction, they want to solve this and I want to do that. And being able to talk about something that's as complex as a hardware, software, and content company and making it clear, concise, and being confident in the mission and what's needed to execute on that, I think is really something that I, I saw that was really attractive. And then I quickly saw being, you know, I also owned um, some Orange Theories. And so I started to understand the, the importance of you know, the subscription model and that reoccurring revenue stream. And whether you're on your bike or not, you're still paying. And, yeah. and, and the churn that they had was very limited. They were basically very equivalent in the first year to buying a TV. I mean, they're, they're just literally, you don't see people giving back TVs, but the amount of individuals that were still using the product a year later was some, another very impressive ma metrics that I was looking at um, as well. So those were the things that I saw early on and, and thought that 
thought that it um, had a chance and um, nevertheless it did. And we had to sell after the six month lockup. We're not in the position to hold stock either, but it still was a nice win for us. Well, congratulations. So you touched upon what you liked about the founder of Peloton. He was very clear, concise, and confident. I'd like to hear more about that. I think our listeners are always curious. You know, it's the old jog, you're betting on the jockey, you're betting on the horse. What do you look for in founders? The unique lens that I get a chance to look to view founders through is the fact that I've been around some of the most alpha men in in the world. When you think about professional athletes, Mm-hmm. And those individuals' ability to play at the highest level, to dedicate themselves, to commit themselves, to embrace what it takes to be elite is something that is it's hard, to, hard to talk about. It's hard to, it's hard to see unless you've been, a ch- been around it. Many of us have watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan and people were blown away about his commitment to being the best of all time. Well, that's what it takes that type of commitment, that type of dedication, that type of desire, it has to permeate itself through that founder because it is a hard, like you said, you were a founder. You know how hard it is. And unless you're willing to put in the time to do the hard, the hard stuff, the chances of you actually, no matter how smart you are, how much money you have, the chances of you bringing something to fruition to the very end is probably highly unlikely. There's a lot of men, a lot of great women out there that are savvy business people, but there's only a handful of companies every year that find a way to become unicorns. It's just, it's just a reality. There's a lot of great athletes out there. I look at athletes now and I go, there's no way I could play in the NFL. These college athletes are phenomenal, Mm -hmm. but the, the chances of them actually playing in the NFL and playing for a long period of time and winning champ. It's just a very, very small percentage. And sometimes it has to do with timing. You could get all those things right. In timing, COVID could happen and you can get it completely wrong. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm, I think one of my skill sets is my ability to look into somebody's heart and see what type of conviction that they have. And it takes time, right? That's part of the diligence process of getting to know them, asking the right questions, understanding what makes them tick. And, you know, now founders are becoming savvy. I mean, you can Google how to pitch somebody. You can Google how to, build a deck and you can say all the right things. It's, it's when you start to talk to somebody about all the other areas of their life that I think you start to get a more comprehensive view of of them. And I'll be honest, I think there's one thing my kind of quick litmus test is, you know, something my dad taught me when I was younger. And I remember every time I would leave the house or go out with friends, he would never tell me, here, you need to be back at this time. He'd never ask me where I was going he never tell me all. the one question he would ask. The only question he would ask is like, who are you going with? And I'd tell him and he'd say, okay, great. And that's all I, that's all you'd ever ask. And I always used to think he didn't care. And I remember asking him as I got older, Hey dad, why don't you ever care? Like, why don't you, you always ask me just who I'm going with. You never care where I'm going. He said, all I care about is who you're with. Cause if I know who you're with, I'm gonna have a pretty good idea of what you're going to be doing. And that's all that matters to me. And I think about, one of the questions I love to ask is tell me who your five best friends are. Who are the five best people that you, or who are the five people you spend the most time with? Who are your five mentors? Who are your five customers? Who are the five people you just hired? Who are the five people you just fired? Who are the five investors? I'll get a pretty good sense of your of kind of who you are and how you operate by the five books you just read or the five podcasts you just listened to. And those are the things that I think are ways that we try to 
dive in and get into inside of somebody's mind and spirit and soul and to understand, do they have it? Do they, do they love? I had a coach. I'll never forget this. Joe Barry. Every day I'd come into the, into the locker room, no matter where I was, he'd come by and he'd grab me, grab my shoulder and he'd look me in my eyes and go, do you love ball? And I'd say, yeah, coach, I love ball. No, he didn't grab you again. No, look me in my eyes and tell me <laughs> you love it. And he would do it every day. Yeah. And the reason he would do it every day is because it's hard work. It's uh, tired. You bleed. Your body breaks down. Your mind breaks down. And if you don't have a deep conviction and deep passion, you'll love it. You're probably not going to put in what's needed to make it happen and be the best. And so I never forget that. And I, I'll just ping my founders and I'll just say, hey, I'll just say, do you love it? I'll just, you know, randomly ask them because it's just a reminder. If you don't love it, that's okay. That's not a problem. I'm not judging you, but you may want to think about doing something else or be okay with the results you do get. Well, that's so true because they're going to get knocked down. They're going to get punched in the face. They're going to go through all the trials and tribulations that every founder goes through. And we see it here. And I'm sure you see it. We have about uh, the Florida Founders as a whole. We have 35 direct investments, portfolio companies, another 60 we manage for the state of Florida. And what we see with founders all the time is we look for, did they have the stick to itness? Are they going to give up? It's going to get tough. You know it. You know, it, Ryan, it, it's going to get tough, right? It's going to be really right. hard at times. And when it gets really hard and they can't make payroll or their, you know, their biggest customer fires them or they lose their top sales person, what do they do? Are they going to cut and run? And that's the, the, the analogy with sports is, is you're making is, is such a good one. I never played sports at anywhere near the level you did, but I'm, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, but I think all of us, you know, in that have played sports, whether it's peewee football, t-ball, you know, high school, college, or even in the pros, those are the things that I, I encourage parents to allow their kids to play because you learn things. You learn how to work with others. You learn how to understand failure. You learn these other principles that are so important in life. And, you know, I think about where we are in today's world right now and the backdrop of everything that's going on. And I just feel for, so fortunate to be able to be in a, <clears throat> have had the chance to be in a locker room and had a chance to huddle up with men of all different walks of life and come from all different backgrounds and find ways to, to work together. Men that I probably would have never broke bread with or ate with, but I got a chance to learn and understand them, hear them and see them. And th those experiences for me have been invaluable. Well, it sounds like it. And, you know, we, one of the things that we talk to our founders about all the time is business is a team sport. And the, the lessons you learned, it sounds like playing football and growing up at sports, the same thing, true in business. You're only as good as your team. And who do you surround yourself with? How, how good your team? So we see it all the time. And one of the things we look for in founders is, are they going to be able to recruit a team and surround themselves with really high quality people? Because they're not going to be able to do this alone. I don't care who they are. No, that's one of the other things that, I mean, if you, you, one of the other qualities you touched on that I look for are founders. You need somebody who has the, if they're not the founder and they're a CTO and they're more of an introvert, then they need a co-founder, somebody that's more of the extrovert. But you need somebody on the team very early on, has to, I think has to be one of the founders, that's charismatic enough, that can tell the story in a way that can attract talent, especially in Silicon Valley and other areas that we look are looking at companies. Talent is you know, getting paid a premium and talent's hard to come by and talent can go anywhere. You better tell a very compelling story and if you can't convince me as an investor to invest, it's going to be hard to convince, you know, your engineer, your head of product, your head of sales. I mean, 
you're like those positions, it's going to be tough. Hey, Ryan, I want to touch on, you know, you're ta- you alluded several times to what's going on in the world today. We talked a little bit about COVID, but I want to switch to the whole uh, George Floyd, the protests that are going on across the country about African-American social inequalities and police treatment and all that. Um, I want to look at more from the perspective of an investor. I know here at Florida Funders, we say all the time, we don't see enough enough founders coming to us that would like to see that are minorities, that are women, that are Latino, that are African-American, would, would love to see more of that and more of them and would like to invest in more of them. You know, 11% of the U.S. population is black, but according to PitchBook, only 1% of funded startups have black founders. What are your thoughts on this and how do we change this? Yeah, we change it first by what we're doing right now. We're talking about it. We have to talk about it. We have to, we have to learn why there are inefficiencies in the system. Why are there challenges in, in the system? Why is there a friction for minorities to have the opportunity to get funding or to even start? One of the hardest things to do in life is to start something or to go mm. out of your comfort zone. We have to figure out why, what the root of that is. And to me, one of the number one things that we can do is, is educate. And what I mean is not you know, I have a, a three, year, three and a half year old son. He's almost about to turn four. We've started to, you know, practice reading and teaching him his sounds and getting him to try to come up to speed on, on how to read and, and, and learn about that. And, and it's, I was thinking the other day about how important reading comprehension is. And I was thinking about how important that is that we spend our, your entire schooling constantly learning that. And even into your adult life through experience and others. You're constantly adding to your ability to comprehend the text that's in front of you. It's interesting to me that you do that so that you have a better understanding of how to digest it, how it affects you, how to respond to it, how to act appropriately and use that knowledge, either good or bad, to, to, to move forward or, or, or not. And I think right now, one of the things I think is really important that in our country is we also don't have, we, we, need, we need racial comprehension. We need to be able to lean in and dig in to understand where these deficiencies are, where these um, challenges are, especially in the black community, especially in the minority community. But all of us have a responsibility to try to find ways to, to do better. And as it pertains specifically to investments, there's going to be more. And I say that hopefully because we're talking about it now. We're putting programs in place to help educate and teach young kids that these opportunities are out there. And I alluded to it earlier I really do believe you can't dream about something you've never seen. And so we actually spend multiple times throughout the year bringing people to Silicon Valley, athletes, investors, students, others to come and hear and see and touch and feel. What does this look like? What are the investors saying? What is the founder talking about? How does this company actually get made? What are they actually building? When you can tangibly touch and see, all of a sudden, you can say, well, I, I kind of look like that person. I'm like that. I'm actually maybe better than that person. Mm-hmm. I can now start to dream about going into fields that maybe I never thought were possible. And it's amazing to me how important that is. And so to me, the more that we can expose young minds to these other possibilities um, are important. I also believe that in venture, specifically in investing, mentorship. You know, we see a lot of programs. I'm sure you guys, you have, you know, 1,500 plus investors and others. You know, I challenge those. Have they talked talk to one person, one minority? Say, hey, I'm, I'd love to just talk with you 30 minutes a month about 
you know, investment advice, about startup advice, about entrepreneurship. You talk to one, you talk, put your arm around one student, the compounding effect of what that will look like in the future will be, be phenomenal. And, and so that is something that I think is really important. And I'm, my heart hurts for my brothers and sisters in the black community that are feeling so much right now. And I know that um, there's a movement right now for change. And I pray for everybody's endurance during this time, because this isn't something that can just be solved overnight. It's not something that you can, even though 11% of the population is black, and we only have 1% of of the black community being funded, that's not going to get solved overnight. But if we, if we have the right coaches, if we have the right motivation, we have the right accountability partners, we can move forward. I'll never forget every year I start the year. I don't know, probably like most and go, I'm going to be a better me. I'm going to work out more. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to do more. I got these goals. And I don't know, mm-hmm. two weeks later, sometimes I fall off the wagon and it's, you know, it's a, it's a strength coach. It's a, my friends, it's my family that hold me accountable. Say, Man, remember that goal you had? Remember what you said you were going to do? And that's what we might need, need now is to make sure we're holding each other accountable, that we're helping each other, that we're inspiring each other and supporting each other and lifting each other up because we're going to fall off. We're going to make mistakes. We're imperfect. That's we're humans. But I think if we hold each other, each other accountable and, and, and do it out of, of a genuine place to be better, to pursue good, eliminate the injustices and the inequalities that permeate itself, we got a chance. What a great message. That was really well articulated. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Education is such an important part of, of, of really lifting all people up. And your part about mentorship, it reminds me of Israel, went to Israel a couple of years ago on a tech trip. And if you're familiar with Israel and Startup Nation, the technology coming out of that country is nothing short of amazing, especially given the size of the country. Exactly. And I was talking to some of the entrepreneurs about, you know, why is it that your brightest and best and are all becoming entrepreneurs? And I said, you, you have to realize in Israel, if you're a young kid growing up in a kibbutz, you're not dreaming of playing in the NFL or the NBA or becoming a rock star. You, you know that your friend's cousin uh, founded Waze and sold it to Google for $4 billion or whatever the number was. And he was, he did it. He lived in the, you know, the kibitz next door in the neighborhood yeah. next door. And if he did it, I can do it. So I've got the, all these young people. And in fact, you're part of, you can, if you can see it, you can dream it and they see it every day. And that's why there are so many unicorns now coming out of Israel and so much amazing technology. Well, there's a lot of other factors no, to it. Education is a big part of it too, but. I agree. You see that in Silicon Valley too, the the fact that you can, you hear these consistent conversations. I would also say that, you know, even if you look at, and I don't know what the statistic is, but I'm sure if you looked at, you know, family structures, kids that have parents and doctors probably become doctors, you know, kids that's parents and lawyers probably become lawyers. You're just around it. You hear the vernacular, you hear the, the, the rhythm of the business, you you're introduced to it early on. And so I think that that's where we, we have to do a better job and, and entrepreneurship and is something that um, I believe will, will, will help so many people and something that I'm, I'm, I know we're doing our very best to, to do our part. So, Ryan, that, that, that's awesome. I, uh, we're running out of time, so I, I just want to close, and, you know, but I want to thank you. Thank you for being on the show. What an inspiration. What great messages. I know our audience and our investors and our founders are really going to enjoy listening to this and hearing your your words of, of advice and wisdom and counsel and, and mentorship. You're truly an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Well, I appreciate you having me on and, and thank you for all your supporters out there. I know you have a bunch of investors that believe in what you guys are doing. And I'm, uh, I'm grateful for all the work you guys are doing in Florida, um, supporting founders, giving them the, the capital they need to make their dreams come to life. So um, I appreciate you and look forward to working with you guys again soon. Great. Thanks again for our listeners. That concludes our our show this afternoon, I just want to end by saying, if you have any interest in Florida funders, just go out to our website, floridafunders.com. If you're a founder, there's an easy way for you to go on there and apply to get into our process if you're looking for funding. If you're an investor, there's an equally easy way to get engaged with us and uh, we'd, would welcome you to our community. And we're always looking to add investors and we're always looking for great, great founders to fund. So Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we'll be back next month with another podcast. And thanks again to Ryan. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye.